0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Why are private equity firms clogging up the aisles at British supermarket chain William Morrison? Amy Donnellan and Peter Thal Larson will explain. And our Asia columnists discuss Beijing's new attitude to U.S.-listed Chinese companies. Stay tuned for this week's edition of The Views Room. Welcome to The Viewsroom. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters News, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. In this week's edition, I speak to Amy Donlin and Peter Thal-Larson in London about a private equity feeding frenzy for Morrison's, the $9 billion supermarket chain operator. Morrison's has received two buyout offers, one from Clayton Dubilier, Rice and another from Fortress, the investment group acquired by SoftBank a few years ago. The Grocers Board approved the higher 254 pence a share bid from Fortress, which also has backing from the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board and the Koch Brothers real estate arm. And there's chatter about another potential offer in the works from Apollo or CDR itself, whose earlier bid was rejected. Amy and Peter explain the charms of British supermarkets, at least for the LBO guys. Next up, I speak to Robin Mack and Yawen Chen in Hong Kong about some shifts in the way Beijing is regulating some of China's best known US listed companies. As Robin and Yawen explained, there are a few different dynamics taking place. One, which knocked shares of ride hailing app Didi Global just days after it went public in New York, is related primarily to data security. The other concerns China's approach to offshore corporate domiciles in places like the Cayman Islands, which have allowed them to get around certain rules at home so they could raise capital from US investors. As Yowen tells it, the changes could hamper that flow of money. Give a listen. Private equity firms are clogging the aisles at W.M. Morrison. I guess that's William Morrison to those of us outside of the UK. Is that right, Amy?
1: Yeah.
0: So it's a nine, it could be $9 billion LBO, the supermarket chain. What is, and we've got, I think, three potential contenders in there. You've got Clayton, Dubilier Rice, Fortress, and possibly Apollo. What is it about Morrisons that's so attractive to these guys?
1: Well, it has been a very interesting month in grocery chains uh, in the UK. So this all kind of started midway through last month, uh, where Morrisons came out and said that they had um, received and rejected an offer from Clayton, Dubilier and Rice um and little did we know that actually a parallel conversation was going on at the time um with fortress investment uh, group uh, which obviously is the soft bank group and they are in a consortium with canadian pension fund and uh coke real estate which is the real estate arm of coke industries so yes there's lots of interest and then we also heard that apollo apparently is also considering a bid uh for morrison's so plenty of interest um and we're and for Morrison's, there's, there's kind of, I guess there's a few things that could be going on, one of which is, is is really the property. So there's a property element to lots of these UK grocers, Morrison's more than any. It owns about 85% of its freeholds, and at the last annual report, they said that was worth about £6 billion, which is about 90% of their market value. So if you were a private equity buyer and you were looking at uh, this supermarket chain, you might think to yourself, well, what I can do is a big Sale and leaseback program. So I will sell the property, get a bunch of cash, and then I'll just pay rent to whoever then owns that property. So right. That's the big interesting things. But,
0: but so Peter, are you a shopper at Morrison's, or are you more of a Waitrose guy? I can't remember.
2: Um, uh, I have to say I'm not a regular shopper at Morrison's. Not necessarily out of out of any kind of particular brand affiliation, but more because. Um, that Morrison's tends to be uh, that their supermarkets tend to be more in the north of the country. Um, although they did actually, they made an acquisition a bunch of years ago, which which expanded their footprint a bit. But uh, I live in London, and there aren't that many Morrison supermarkets in London, so um, um, so that's uh, uh, why I'm not there. But they've, I mean, you know, they're they're sort of the underdog. You know, they're the number four in the market behind Tesco and Sainsbury's and ASDA, um, and they've sort of done some interesting things um they've sort of you know they've made a big thing out of out of uh, uh using more local produce and 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 working with small farmers um they've they've also got an interesting uh sort of thing with Amazon where they basically supply Amazon's uh groceries for its uh, its grocery delivery service so so they sort of a scrappy underdog but it's still it's pretty remarkable um that that you know this 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 company which is the number 4 in in what has always been a very competitive market
0: um, is, is facing all this interest. I remember they bought, didn't they buy Safeway back? There was a bit a bit of a, a takeover battle for Safeway. You, you remember well. That's I very do, impressive. I do, I do actually remember shopping at a Safeway. It could only have gotten better under Morrison's. But um, Amy, so the, there is this issue. There's the property. There's a bunch of things that you can do with it. But it sounds to me like at least with the deal that they reached with Fortress, which is owned by SoftBank now, kind of curiously, um, that they actually have said that they were going to maintain the, or the, it sounded like they were making certain uh, promises that they wouldn't chop it up for yes. Spoils, yes. It yep. explain yep. that a bit. How are they going to get an IRR that, that that matters, an internal rate of return that meets these private equity guys' um, hurdle rates, if they can't actually uh, do what, what you said would actually make it work?
1: yes i mean we've kind of run the numbers and at the 6.3 billion pound offer it doesn't look like they can get anywhere near the kind of 20 um internal rate of return you would expect for a private equity buyer um and as you say they have included um what they've called um intentions so that along with this statement that morrison sent out last saturday morning they also said that they were going to um protect jobs they were going to uh, keep the minimum wage at around 10 pounds an hour um they were going to keep the headquarters in bradford as peter said they tend to be very focused on the north of the country so that is important um and then crucially yeah they, they basically said that they don't intend to do any material sale and leaseback program so that definitely would would impact the kind of return um that they would be able to to get um d- looking at the numbers that we have um but there is an interesting element to these uh, assurances or promises um so they're they they look very robust um some of the language is is a little bit vaguer than others um but the crucial thing is there are kind of two tiers um in the uk in terms of of the takeover code and these are these are called an intention statement so fortress and uh, the other bidders have said uh, these are the things that we now see at this point that we intend to do and they those are valid for 12 months uh, and so um they don't they don't actually last that long um, and they're certainly not as robust as what we've seen for kind of GK and Melrose. These kind of these um, they could be these are basically assurances that are, are kind of policed by the takeover over panel. And if they are if they breach them, they can be taken to court and they are called post offer undertakings. And there are no post offer undertakings in the statement that went out last Saturday.
0: OK, so there's still oh, there's even if in a short term, there may be some they may restrain themselves. They have an opportunity longer term. To do what they, they like, it sounds they like do. they do, and but, you also have like it's sort of an interesting element to this. Now, we think about um internal rates of return that you say like 20 percent. You also do have in on board the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, which I tend to think of as a sort of longer term infrastructure investor, and as well as the Koch family real estate investments. But is it possible that they see this? Maybe this is a sort of post pandemic phenomenon that where you, you see this. This this company uh, distribution company like this is sort of a piece of infrastructure rather than just a uh, a member of the retailing sector.
2: I I think there is some some discussion about that. Um, You know, the, the people have sort of talked about it in those terms. Um, and I guess in the grand scheme of things, you could say post-pandemic, well, you know, we've shown us how important supermarkets are, um, you know, they they will be sort of, you know, uh, protected in some way. But I mean, there's nothing in that that says this particular supermarket is going to be protected. And when you think about the dynamics of what's going on in the market, so they're the, they're the number four in a, in, a, in a pretty competitive market. You've got these German uh, uh, discounters, Aldi and Lidl, that have been great. Right, gradually encroaching in the uk and taking market share by just selling very cheap stuff um now you've got the whole sort of uh online delivery uh thing with 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 Icado and others um and some of these new upstarts that are doing rapid deliveries um amazon potentially getting involved so there's a lot going on in this market and it just there's, there's nothing there that really says to I me mean, well this this pandemic has dramatically changed the the sort of the attractiveness or the return profiles or anything like that of of, of these supermarkets. So it really just seems like uh, basically people are sort of talking themselves into a rationale for for buying these things and also crucially leveraging them up um and uh, which is what happened with Asda the, the the business that used to be owned by Walmart and was bought by these uh, these two brothers in the UK the Issa brothers uh, they basically borrowed a lot of money to buy the supermarket so that seems to be what's going on but uh, but yeah but that idea that it's an infrastructure play I think is is um is 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 probably
0: uh, not doesn't really stand up to scrutiny no no i guess a bigger question amy is is this just a british phenomenon i mean we you know the uh, the uk uh, the UK has a special relationship, of course, with its grocers, but, you know, private equity has been involved around the world with with supermarkets chains. Uh, what What's your sense? Is this sort of a, is this a, a UK phenomenon or is this a, something that we're seeing around the world and can see more of in other places?
1: I think we're definitely seeing a, like a much, much more focused interest on grocers. Um, this was starting to happen before the pandemic. And I think definitely in the past year, it has been accelerated. Uh, so we saw in France, for example, um Canada's Couche uh, made a bid for um, Carrefour. Um there's a Czech billionaire called Daniel Kutinsky that's been buying up stakes in grocers like Casino again in France, as Jay Sainsbury in the UK. Um he also just bought a stake in a Spanish grocer. Uh, and then across the pond in the U.S., uh, Apollo took a stake in Albertsons last year as well, which was famously owned by Cerberus. So you have seen um, private equity companies definitely taking taking more of an interest in in grocers. Um, but I think that this maybe the U.K. phenomenon is really to do with the property um, that we've kind of touched on. And the Morrison situation is that it is, it, it owns a lot more in terms of percentage of its property than the other grocers do. So Tesco and Sainsbury's are the, the big rivals to Morrison's. Uh, they own about 50 to 60 percent of their property, uh, whereas Morrison's owns 85 percent. So that would be one of the interesting things in the UK market. Um, but no, I think I think the the pandemic and the, the fact that that supermarkets have become sort of strategic and, Therefore, there's also all of these kind of leveraging opportunities that you can do. Um, I think probably people think they're, they're more interesting now.
0: Right. OK, you, you both have one last bonus question. Sunday is England uh, versus Italy in the Euro Cup final. OK, Amy, you're Irish, but I'm going to pretend you're English for the purpose of this question. And Peter, of course, you have Danish blood in you, so you may be conflicted as well and some Italian blood. But... You've, get, you've been given £50 pounds to go spend at William Morrison's uh, to buy uh, provisions for a party to watch the game. What do you buy, starting with you, Amy?
1: Oh, provisions. Um, I would buy probably plenty of beer um, to, to prepare probably for the fact that Italy is going to win and there'll be lots of sad faces around England.
0: So so it'll be Peroni beer, I suppose. <laughs>
1: Peroni beer. And Peter, what, what does
0: your £50 pounds buy you in advance of Sunday's game? Well, I, I, I don't know
2: because I don't go to Morrison's that often, but I suspect you could probably buy a lot of frozen pizza for £50. Pounds. So, um, And it might not be pizza that really that the Italians would recognise, but um, uh, again, I think it would probably um, help you get through what
0: is looking like probably an Italian victory. Hawaiian pizza, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, guys, thank you very much. Good luck to England or Italy on Sunday. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Robin and Yawen, great to talk to you guys. There's been a lot of really interesting stuff coming out of uh, China and all the way across to New York uh, this week. So let's start with what happened with Didi, which is sort of like China's Uber, right, Robin? They went public. And then they went and vomited all over the stock exchange this week. What actually happened?
3: Hi, Rob. Yeah, so Didi is China's number one ride-hailing company. Uber has a stake in it, backed by SoftBank. Um, And this was one of the most anticipated IPOs in New York this year. And just within days of the IPO, the Cyberspace Administration of China, which is a little-known regulator, Has come out with a data security investigation into the company, which caused its shares to fall about 20% overnight on Tuesday. This is, it's a really interesting development because this regulator, uh, the CAC, it's mostly known for being for online censorship. But recently they've really bulked up and they're now leading this very prominent charge from President Xi Jinping on cybersecurity and protecting uh, national data. So it's a huge test case in some ways because China is rolling out a lot of new data security laws and they are now being applied to Didi, which is going to be the most high profile target. Um, well, some take. of these
0: things, so so they've ordered their app stores in China to remove Didi from their app, which is a huge deal, right? And, and the argument was that it had somehow Ill- illegally collected some users data is that is that the charge from the cyberspace administration
3: yeah so it's not clear what exactly the issue is so the cyberspace administration has come out you know recently and said that they want to protect critical information infrastructure and it's not really clear what that means but Didi because they are a transport company they have a lot of uh, traffic data which could be quite critical could constitute as a critical information infrastructure operator but on the other hand they also have you know millions and millions of users and yeah the cybersecurity is is now accusing them of you know illegally collecting this data for whatever he,
0: purposes okay so the chinese government sat coming out and telling companies or ordering companies to do something is not all that shocking. The fact that it was this less known agency or, or one that had been known for stamping out online indecency, of course, is a little bit of a wrinkle. But I guess what's really shocking to me is they've gone out, Didi had gone out and done a huge roadshow or a virtual roadshow, sold in one of the biggest IPOs in, in, in recent memory, gone out to the New York, to investors around the world, listed the New York Stock Exchange, gone through due diligence, had investment bankers crawling all over their accounts and auditors. How is it possible that like a week later, this thing comes out? Like there was no hint of it. That to me just doesn't seem right.
3: I think that's right. I think a lot of people were blindsided by this. I mean, the CAC was not the biggest threat even days leading up to the IPO, the biggest threat that a lot of people were worried about was antitrust um, because Didi was implicated in an antitrust investigation. So for, you know, the CAC to just come out with these new data security laws and a cybersecurity investigation into Didi, it's almost as if they didn't want Didi to go public in the first place. And because they couldn't do anything to stop it, um, you know, they were just extremely unhappy and they kind of did this to get revenge.
0: Right. So after the fact, they basically seem to punish them. The problem is what you're doing is punishing. You're punishing the investors who bought into it. You're essentially punishing the or or hurting the view of of companies that are raising capital outside of China. And that, that just seems a little bit like a. a you know, a spiting, you know, slicing the nose to spite the face. No?
3: No, I think that's right. And I and, and I think for years there's has been this tension that, you know, a lot of Chinese companies, they need foreign capital and they have benefited a lot from being able to list in the US. But at the same time, Beijing is increasingly uncomfortable with that because of national se- security concerns. And also, Most of these companies, including Didi, they use offshore structures like Cayman Island holding companies, which put them, puts them outside of the purview of Beijing and a lot of the local regulations.
0: Um, But that's starting to change now. Well, that's interesting. You bring let's bring Yawen into this because the the Chinese government also came out a couple of days after beating up Didi with these new guidelines to step up supervision on Chinese companies instead of abroad. Yawen, what it, what was what is it that the government has essentially said here?
4: Um, yeah, it's it's quite unusual for the State Council and the General Office of the ruling Communist Party to lead a f- fairly capital market concentrated document. It's touched on overseas listings of all these Chinese companies. It's relatively vague and lacking details at the stage for all these kind of top level documents. But it's very clear that they were very upset. They couldn't um, act even more control in terms of um, how these companies are going going public in U.S. markets or um, in, in this process, how much say they had. So what usually happened in the past is that um, those Chinese companies would uh, regularly check in with regulators and there's some kind of window guidance going on if a listing is not seen as favorably or they wanted those companies to delay their listing somehow. Um, and according to the Wall Street Journal, DD was the rebellious one that didn't listen to the warnings from the cybersecurity regulator. Um, So I think that's why there's such a strong reaction afterwards as well. And according to this new rule, um, it sounds like they wanted to amend how they assess the VIE structure, which basically means that Chinese companies could have escaped domestic review by establishing all these Cayman Islands or British Virgin Islands. So maybe let's
0: just step back for a second. So basically, the way you've described it is most companies, big Chinese companies, including big, big, big titans like Alibaba, rely on a complex web of foreign and domestic structures that are known as these variable interest entities, which are essentially, I don't know, they're subsidiaries or holding companies. Uh, in a way, that are based in the Cayman Islands, which somehow gets them out of, makes them a little bit out of the the grip of Beijing, um, even if it doesn't make them U.S. companies, but it allows them then to list in the U.S. Is that how it works?
4: Correct. They're basically shell companies that are Mm -hmm. um, parent companies of all these Chinese companies that actually run the operations on Chinese soil. So that solves the problem of one. Um, China has a very strict rule towards, you know, um, granting licenses to foreign investors or foreign companies. So by ha- by leaving the operation side to the Chinese companies, the Chinese subsidiaries, um, they can avoid running into this foreign domestic licensing issue. But then having a foreign company outside of China that is going listed in the States, they can avoid this lengthy review process at home for targeting Chinese companies.
0: And now they're basically just saying, uh, we're reviewing this. They haven't actually given full cl- full clarity on what they're, what they're going to do about it.
4: No, but, but I, th- I think that's the direction they're going. They clearly are very upset that they couldn't exert more control on, on, on all these listings.
0: Okay, so if I pull all this together, and Robin, I mean, it sounds to me like that gravy train or that uh, that that flow of capital from global investors via New York back to China is being impeded by the Chinese authorities more than anything else.
3: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I, I, on one hand, you have a lot of regulatory uncertainty now, not just with antitrust like we've seen with Alibaba, but also now data, um, which pretty much applies to every tech uh, company out there. Um, so there is going to be you know, regulatory risk, but at the same time, you also may have the government stopping Chinese companies from listing abroad. Um, so there, th- those are just two factors that will completely uh, impede the you know, Chinese listings bonanza that we've seen over the past few years.
0: Well is this yeah. done for some big public policy decision like okay, but we want to we want to foster Shanghai as a destination as a as a for formation of risk capital, or we want to put you know keep Hong Kong in some important fact is there something there beyond just fear of of loss control
3: i mean i think I think that's a good question. I think there is um for sure Hong Kong and shanghai will benefit from this, Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, I, I don't believe that the government wants to stop all companies from going abroad to the U.S. I think they just want to have a bit more control over the process.
4: I think another factor is this delisting threat from the U.S. It's unclear what would happen if the POCAB asked Chinese companies for You know more data to for them to audit um so that that is probably on the back of chinese regulators minds when they they're viewing all these listings
0: right all right well it sounds like a rocky period for investors in chinese companies in the states um but uh, we'll have to keep looking to your guys stories to try to figure out what's going on thank you both so much thanks rob thanks That's our show for the week. Thanks to our producer, Freddie Joyner, New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your high-quality podcasts. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Thank you.